0: everyone and welcome to Pro Tour Talk with Steve Dodge. I'm Steve Dodge. Today is August 15th, 2018. We have got a jam-packed show. In addition to the Ask Me Anything segment, we will do a review of the MVP Open. We have a conversation with Paul Ulibarri about course design that is worth listening to, just like everything here. And then we will go into uh, what it will take to get into the Tour Championship, one final review before the MVP Open, and we will close out with our Podcast of the Week. Here we go. So, as usual, we will start it out with our Ask Me Anything segment, where the Disc Golf Pro Tour, namely me, discusses questions about disc golf and the Pro Tour from you, our listeners. If you would like to submit a question, go to dgpt.com AMA and submit a question. We will be happy to answer it on next week's show. So our first question asks about three days versus four days and says specifically that on the live broadcast, it was mentioned that players enjoy three-day tournaments as opposed to four-day tournaments. My guess is that A.J. Risley wishes the Ledgestone was three days. The question that he then leads to is, how is viewership on each of the days on average? And that is a really interesting question, uh, and it's a, a pretty straightforward answer. So at an event, whether it's three days or four days, day one is going to have very good viewership. Day two's numbers are going to be soft relative to day one, as is day three, and then day four is going to be, or I should say the final round, is going to have what seems to be the best viewership uh, in general. Sometimes day one outperforms the final day, but in general the final day is the best of the live covered rounds. So uh, day one and the final round are our strong rounds, the middle rounds, whether it's Uh, three or a four-day tournament. The middle rounds are the soft rounds as far as viewership goes. Having said that, all of our viewership numbers are going up, 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 and the final round at Ledgestone, uh, we once again eclipsed 44 minutes. I think it was 4404 was the average watch time for the final day at the Ledgestone. So. We are, And I think on the first day, actually, it was over 40. So we are now starting to eclipse 40 minutes, which was my goal at the beginning of the season. It'll be interesting to see if we can bring the average up, which is currently uh, closer to 39 minutes at the MVP and the Tour Championship, see if we can bring that live broadcast average over 40 and hit our, hit our target. But, so thank you for that question. Now we go on to question two. So question two asks us about the odds of an AJ Risley winning a Pro Tour event. Um, What would Vegas think of that? Um, Very interesting topic. I have no clue what the odds are. Going into the event, I would have given AJ 30 to one, maybe 40 to one odds against winning, so. I'd get 250 if I'm right that he does not win, and I'd pay out 100 bucks if I'm wrong and he does win. So something along those lines seems about accurate. It reminds me a little bit of Buster Douglas back in the 80s, maybe 90s, when he beat Mike Tyson for the uh, the boxing championship. I remember hearing that was about a 50 to 1 odds, and thinking to myself. I'd put two bucks on Buster winning that one. Just think someone's gonna randomly get that one good shot off and uh, give himself a chance. And uh, AJ Risley had uh, hundreds, hundreds of great shots and gave himself that chance. So it didn't happen, but it came close and it's really fun to think about. And I'll put it out there. Should we start a uh, some sort of a predict it page for The Pro Tour events, where you can uh, you can put in put in a couple pence, and uh, if you're right, get out a couple pence. It's an interesting thought because that would be a way to set the odds and have people like using their money figure out exactly what the odds should be. So you know, every time someone picks on picks Ricky Wysocki and doesn't pick AJ, that the odds get a little longer for AJ. Anyway interesting concept and a great question thank you very much our third question is actually a combined question we had uh, independent people ask have you ever thought about doing different formats one person asked about doing some doubles stuff and another person asked about doing a manufacturer's challenge and both of those are really great ideas obviously uh i used to run the players cup as a match play tournament uh and that was I thought a really good event it was just difficult to manage from uh, from afar and so that event had to take a <laughs> so far a very long hiatus but uh, I like the idea of both of these. obviously it wouldn't be a pro tour event with points but it would be something that the pro tour could absolutely be involved with and uh, help to promote and uh, and have have a lot of fun with. I personally like the idea of a manufacturer's challenge towards the end of the season. Or maybe the beginning of the season, so somewhere in January, uh, the manufacturers fly five of their star players down to uh, somewhere in the south, and uh, and and go ahead and go up in a like a match play format or a team format where they compete against each other for the, you know, the manufacturer of the world or something along those lines. It would be really, really fun. And uh, there would be some significant bragging rights. And in my opinion, the team that wins would be the team that hosts the next year. So uh, by winning, you are gaining the ability to say that your team is the best, and you have to invite the other people to come try to take the crown from you next year. And being host, you put up the money to uh, To help facilitate it, so uh, it would be it would be a super fun event, and a lot of people would be really excited to watch that. I know that uh, some people are manufacturer based, and like they, they they only like their one manufacturer, but most of us like many manufacturers. I know the Pro Tour has many manufacturers that support us, and I would want to see every one of them win. So, anyway, thank you very much for that third ask me anything question. Different events are great, obviously, they're not gonna earn tour points, but uh, we would love to be involved in helping to promote them and make them really fun and special. If you have a question for us, dgpt.com AMA. Let's get ready to watch the MVP open. So as we all know, the MVP Open starts on Friday and runs through Sunday and with the Pro Tour and the European events happening at the same time over the summer, a really interesting dynamic has occurred where at the beginning of the season we've got everybody together and then we we split up a little bit and some people go to Europe and some people stay in the States. and. More people win, because there are more events. The MVP Open is the conclusion to that. As for the first time since early in the season, we have Paul and Ricky and Eagle and Simon all together again. The gang is back together.
1: We're putting the band back together. get it. No way. We're on a
0: mission from God. And... It is going to be awesome. Also returning to Maple Hill for the first time since his championship two years ago is Bradley Williams. Michael Johansson is here as well, who pushed him to a playoff two years ago. And then you've always got James Conrad who is in the mix on any wooded course. This is going to be a battle that is going to be very fun to watch. On the women's side, Sarah Holcomb, Jessica Weiss are playing very hot right now. Paige Pierce won here last year with a dramatic come-from-behind victory over Valerie Jenkins. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I see any of those women taking it down, and it's going to be crazy to see if somebody can build a big lead like has happened the last couple years and uh, and manage to hold it which has happened one of the last couple years. Paige Pierce has won this multiple times in a row and is looking to continue that and get back on her winning ways as we head into Worlds, which is just two weeks after the MVP Open. Also, this is the final event of the Pro Tour season. After this, we go down to the Tour Championships in Jacksonville in October. So, if you want to get into the Tour Championship, you need to get into the top 32. Which is not an easy thing to do. Lots, lots of storylines to watch and we'll touch on that after the interview with Paul Ulibarri.
2: All right, so we are joined by Paul Ulibari, who is uh, a very thoughtful and well-spoken member of the Touring Pros. Hello there, Paul. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Steve. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Before we get into the the meat of the matter, which is going to be discussing um, OB and course difficulty and what players are winning and what kind of... of, uh, Skills are rewarded before we get into that i I'd, I'd love to ask you a quick question just to to get this started off on the right foot last time you, we okay. had you on the show you you told us a great story about Josh anton uh, explaining to someone that it wasn 't the putter that was doing poorly and uh, that that kind of got me thinking i'd love to 'd love to hear a story from you um, What is the most impactful single shot that you've seen? Uh, on the card that you were playing on.
1: Oh man, that's a great, that's a great, great question. Probably the most impactful shot
3: that I've ever witnessed was was done against me in, 2000, in 2008,
1: I believe. 2008, I was okay. playing a smaller tournament, and I
3: led the tournament from start until the very last hole. And the very last hole was hole 18 at Fountain Hills. So water left, O.B. right. And
1: uh at the time, we had kind of crappy baskets on the course as well. Um Some super old whatever, you know, I don't even know what they would be called, whatever the first baskets, you know, that that course had. don't anyways, and they were, they I were probably lock zeroes. Yeah, mock zeros, mock spit-outs is what we call them sometimes. <laughs> um, and we are playing, I was playing against Nico LaCastro at a one-stroke lead. He had the box, and I hadn't, I hadn't not had the lead the entire tournament. And he throws this shot, and he aces the hole. And if you've ever seen the hole, it's impressive to get a birdie on the hole. Much less ace acing the hole. And then I had to follow that up by just having to birdie it to force a playoff. So for the first time, the whole tournament, you know, four-round tournament, I was losing the tournament. And then I ended up losing in a playoff to him. So that was probably the most impactful shot that I ever saw because after that, it didn't matter what I did. It seemed like for a year, year and a half, but Nico always beat me. And I always remember that. I remember he just had my number.
3: That sh- that that shot lasted for over a year
2: in your mind, on the course. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Um, Paul, I think that going forward, I'm just going to have you on every week and have you tell stories, <laughs> stories from the road, <laughs> because they are absolutely engaging. Thank you. Um, and the funny thing is when you said Nico was the person who was one shot behind you I I was racking my yeah, brain I was like wait a minute I think Nico finished your the tournament off with an ace So now we get to the meat of the matter Paul thank you for the great story but you and I are here to talk about something that uh that could impact disc golf for decades going forward and maybe for for the rest of for the rest of time if you have a correct hypothesis and uh i want to just give you i'll give you the floor let you tell us your your thought and then we can uh we can look at how valid we think it is sure yeah
1: yeah i guess i could start by uh saying you know i've been uh doing a little bit of research on just tournaments in general over the last 5 to 6 years and you know, I was wondering how Ricky, Macbeth, a few of these people just completely dominated the sport for so long. What I mean by that is they win a lot of times. They win a lot of times. A lot of the national tours, a lot of the majors, have been won by those two people. And obviously they're the two best players in the world, so that makes a lot of sense. But the other research that I kind of did was I looked at the toughest courses that we play each year, okay? and uh what I mean by that is a course that is very demanding off the tee, demands accuracy, demands angles of landing your disc to where there's not a lot of action after after the disc has landed, things like that. And when I think about the hardest the hardest courses in the world, you know, USDGC comes to mind. We just played Eureka this last weekend, also comes to mind. Um, The Vibram Open, Idlewild, Waco, these are the ones where when I think
3: of really tough and difficult courses that, you know, let's just say we're
1: a lot of the other courses like we saw in Pono Piste is uh, even went 16 down, 16 down. There was a few 14 down, stuff like that. These other courses, if you shoot
3: par or better, you know, you're going to be rewarded with a good score and a good finish. Um, And when we look at those, you would think, okay, harder the course, the more dominant the best players in the world are going to be, when that is not the case actually at all. The harder the course, the less that
1: um, the number one, number two ranked player in the world actually wins.
2: Hold on a second, Paul. Hold on a second. Um, Idlewild, Waco, Maple Hill—these are all mostly wooded courses. When you say harder, it sounds to me right. like you're saying wooded. Is that—is that the differentiator of the wooded courses?
1: No, not at all, not at all. I'm saying demanding off the tee, which means sure, um, woods is a natural is a natural. You know, difficult, uh, obviously, like hitting gaps. That would be a natural um, thing that off the tee is very difficult to do. Um, Being able to control your disc for a long period of time down a fairway, hitting initial gaps is really difficult, but that's not necessarily it at all. USCGC is arguably the hardest place that we play each year, and, uh, you know, it's one of the most wide open. It just has the ropes. And that's probably the number one course that you know Paul's won at one time. Ricky's never won it, and it seems like we have a new winner all the time. I think you I think wills probably won it the most times in the last you know ten years with three times um and he won it when he was sixteen and he hadn't won a tournament before, so I guess what my point is the harder
3: the course. The harder the course, the harder the player, those two players, the better they have to play to beat the field. So I'm not talking about any
1: individual. I'm talking about the two best players playing against the field. In other tournaments, it's easier for them to win tournaments and I'm just wondering why.
3: Why do they dominate other tournaments? Why do they dominate other tournaments that aren't, demanding off the tee.
2: Could, could the answer be, well, it's interesting because USDGC doesn't fit into this. I was going to say a wooded course has the opportunity to be more fluky. Doesn't mean it's going no, to be. But it
3: no, can. no,
1: because the person who's who's playing the best that day, woods, no woods, is going to have the better score. And so I guess my my one of my
3: main points is other courses for the best players in the world, other courses are, let's just say Beth has a bad round. Ricky has a bad round.
1: And I'm using them as an example because of the fact that they are the two
3: best players that we've had for almost a decade, right, um, as far as them just dominating every tournament. So, when they're off, they still win tournaments. On the harder courses, when they're off, the field beats them. When you're off
2: on a harder course, take a Maple Hill or an Idlewild or a USDGC. You get pounded. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you get pounded. You, get, you hit you at a tree, and you kick hard left, and you are in trouble. And you you lose a stroke. There's really almost no way to get that stroke back on that hole.
3: Right, right. You and, if you miss the gap, you're
1: getting punished. It's a natural bunker. If you throw it out of bounds right away, you're getting punished because a lot of these places have drop zones that are far away from the from the basket, like USCCC. Uh You know, there's a few exceptions like like you're saying Maple Hill because. It's the initial gap that is important if you can hit the initial gap, you're probably going to par, but if you miss yeah. the initial gap, you're not going to par probably
3: because you're kicking left or right off the fairway. I mean the fairways are so small, you know ten feet wide on some of them so
2: just uh, I just did a quick look at u s d g c s history and uh the Event at Maple Hill's history um, at maple hill your 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 hypothesis seems to hold up very well um, where the person who was the best at the event wins uh, probably on the order of twenty to twenty five percent of the time uh, the, the first year Ron Russell won, and I think it would be uh, he was arguably the best player at the tournament. And then uh, Kevin McCoy then won. He actually won coming out of the five spots, which was super exciting. And then Chris Sprague, laviska Um And then uh, in 2008, Avery Jenkins won it in his world's year. Then Barry Schultz won it. And then Nico won it. And Nate won it. And, and they those guys were pretty much on top of their game in those years. Um, but of course has gotten I'm, harder
1: uh, over the years. So that's I don't feel well, like that's a fair assessment. I think the well, course oh, has gotten okay. way more penalizing over the next – like right now, you know, I'd say in the past five years, the new additions to the course have made it three to four strokes harder and it's definitely more demanding off the tee.
2: Okay. So it's that? interesting you say that because where I was going was in 2012 through 18, Paul won it once, Ricky won it twice. Uh, they 've been dominant for all six or seven of those years, and they won it just under half the time so right. uh, to your point that's you know there, there's 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 a little proof in that pudding however, when I go to the u s d g c from two thousand twelve on, obviously Paul and Ricky have won the u s d g c once so the the proof is in that pudding as well if we look at the early years and 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 try to rebut this if you can. If we look at the early years of the USDGC from 99 to 2007, uh, Climo and
3: Barry Schultz won it all but once.
2: Is that right. because they were just so much more dominant or because the course was easier? Uh, or just what is, what is the reason that Climo and Schultz won that tournament every year even though it sounds like you would say we wouldn't necessarily expect that,
1: uh, I think the I think the course has definitely gotten harder. The course changes every year to get harder. Um, rules, rules, new drop zones, very penalizing from even the first year that I played it, which was two thousand six. Um,
2: course. Give me one. an example of a rule that they. Give me an example of how they made the course harder.
1: Uh, let's see. Over the years, whole the ropes have gotten way tighter on hole three. Um, hole two, you know, there there used to be no out of bounds on the right side, and now the even if you throw let's say a roller into the fence on the right side, there's out of bounds like a foot off the fence, which is making us throw more accurately and farther. Uh, they're putting Pushing pins back.
2: Um, they even had stroke and distance for a little bit, didn't they?
1: They did, yeah. Yeah, they did for one year. They had a, a stroke and distance, and I believe that's the first year. Shoe won, or it was the second year he won. No, it was the year I believe that was the year after Nico won. So I think that was oh, the yeah. first year. That was Will's maybe. I don't know. Don't quote me on this, but it could have been. His. His first ever win
3: at a <laughs> year or higher. Um, also proving my point.
2: Yeah. Uh, oh, they skipped 2011. 11 was the year they did the uh, the, the ratings based thing.
3: So right. Um, so
2: when you or Eureka,
3: this let let's say Eureka. Let's
1: use Eureka as an example. Um, that was Simon's ever first. That was his first big win as well, I believe. I think he won GBO maybe one year.
2: Yeah, he won years. an N.T. before and that. He did. Yeah.
1: And then he won Eureka.
2: Right. And, Eureka, and we definitely was, hold Eureka, 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 Eureka Lake Eureka. As, a, as a challenging course.
3: Right. And I'm not saying also that Paul and Ricky just don't ever win when it's like that, when the
1: when the course is hard. I'm saying when they're off they don't win. When they're on fire, they're gonna win on any course at any given any given time because they're the two best players in the world. Example so is the year the year that Eureka was stroke and distance, I think Beth won by twelve. But he also blew the field away with a fifty three, I think, the last round.
2: Uh yeah, he, he did the same thing at the uh at the Vibram uh whatever year he He won it, maybe. Right, he shot the 45. When he shot the 45, maybe 14 or 15. Um, But he had a three- or four- or five-stroke lead going into the final round and said, I'm just going to come out guns blazing and see how it goes. Um, And we would definitely hold Eureka Lake up as a challenging course.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep, top three
2: most challenging courses we play all year for sure. Um, And I'll go ahead and say that the uh, overwhelming – majority of the touring players uh rate that course very highly they, they like right. the challenge of that course um it I don't know if it's the highest rated course so far in the in the polling but it's it's right up there um the players really love Jonesboro as well in san francisco and and it's it's right there with those other great courses so
1: right i think i think what makes you know uh, what what people like about it is it's stressful. It gives you that stressful feeling that a lot of these bigger tournaments haven't been giving us, um, because every shot's so important. You know, like say, you know, major championships they bring that extra little, that extra little something, because it's stressful. You know, it's a major. You know, it's important. That type of thing. And when you have a course like this, that's, you know, there's a lot of money up for grab. All the best players in the world are there, and then on top of it, every shot counts. You know, it's the closest—it's the closest tournament that I've played that feels like a USDGC setting. Wow, and I think that's uh, what people like about it.
2: Absolutely, high, high praise. Um, and it's interesting because they both play in—I'll go ahead and say—non-conventional settings, where the USDGC. Sure has the has a, a hole that plays along the stadium and you can see the back of the scoreboard as you're going and then they have eight 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 where the, the parking lot is routinely in play and uh and Ledgestone right. has the, the baseball field and the and the bridge and the water tower. Um the unconventional settings where where you're taking taking those things and, and not only embracing them but making them iconic uh to to the course. So right. um but that's that's a little bit off topic. Uh, getting back to the point at hand, um, I can't help, help but wonder, and, and please don't take this wrong. I think think you, you know that we have mutual respect for each other. But I ha- sure. can't help but wonder, is this sour grapes? Is Paul Ulivari tired of losing because he, and now he's, he's trying to find some reason for it?
3: No,
1: I wouldn't say that. I'm definitely tired of losing, but I don't think it's this this is the reason you know what I wanna <laughs> see is the sport grow. you know I want to see the sport get pushed forward and this last weekend, you know I heard that uh Ledgestone was one of the one of the uh most watched tournaments of the of the year. is that correct
2: uh it might have been our highest i haven't haven't got all the final numbers in yet. But it might have been our highest uh, concurrent viewership on the final day, which was really close to four thousand concurrent viewers, which is amazing.
1: See, and I think that comes from the excitement of different players being in the lead. I mean, Garrett was in the lead for a round, and then AJ took over the show for a little bit, and it was just exciting all around. You know, Ricky and Paul weren't even really in the mix. I think Ricky was in uh, hanging around tenth to eighth place the whole entire time, but six, seven strokes back. And it was like the whole tournament was involved, you know. Um, And that's what, you know, I think that's what the sport needs right now. I think
3: uh, the more different players get
1: involved, the more the fans are going to be able to relate to just the tour in general to be able to start picking these different people to win and, you know, have different fan favorites and stuff like that When the same two people win all the time. It gets boring. It really does, and Eagle and Simon is like this has been the most exciting year so far because it's like those two aren't winning every single weekend. People like that, you know. Yeah, um, and I think this year has probably
3: been the year where people are trying to make these courses harder as well. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, so
2: just but, looking at just I, I'm looking at the analytics for round four at the Ledgestone Insurance Open presented by Discraft. And um the average watch time was over forty four minutes. And the really uh really good the, the the highest concurrent was just under four thousand. So okay. just, we just need a, a dozen more people. <laughs> you know, if you look at
1: if you look at like traditional golf, I think there's nine new winners this year on the tour. You'll have the best players in the world. You know, Dustin Johnson's won 19 times ever in his entire career, and that's he's one of the most winningest players, you know, of, of my generation. And I'm talking about the PGA Tour. Um, Those guys win when they're playing the best. Dustin Johnson's the number one ranked player in the world. He wins when he's playing the best, sure. But when he's off, the field beats him, man. And I think we're at a a time right now where if the courses are being designed in the correct way, you're going to see more and more and more different players winning. Number one is the talent level that the sport has right now is is more than it's
3: ever been.
1: And nobody can argue that. Nobody can argue that.
2: Would you argue that the talent level of golf is higher than the talent level of disc golf?
1: Of course. That's not okay. there, that wouldn't
2: even be an argument. right. And that's and that's part of my point uh being I'm gonna guess that career wins uh as as a sport matures, career wins of the top players comes down. Yes. So for example, if we look at a Ben Hogan who who played I I'm, I'm going to just mess it uh, in the 40s and 50s. I'm going to say uh, he has 64 PGA Tour wins. And if you look at a Ben Crenshaw, who played in the 70s and 80s, he has 30 career wins. Right. And it's my guess is that that number is just going to come down and down and down. And I didn't do Jack Nicklaus on purpose because he was, you know, he, he was an outlier, a, a significant outlier. Same with Tiger Woods, sure. a significant outlier. Right. Jordan Spieth is the best in the world, but as of yet, he has not put himself as an outlier. That, that
1: also comes with these guys not playing as many tournaments, Steve, because they didn't have to. Before, in order to make a living, just like in this golf, these guys had to play more tournaments. You know, Dustin Johnson probably played 10 tournaments a year.
2: So, I'd be interested in seeing how many national tour, pro tour, and major wins... Um, these guys have, because obviously, you know, we, we all know things like Feldberg has a hundred wins and, uh, Kleiner sure. has 200 wins or whatever it is. And how many wins do you have in PDGA wins? Do you have Paul? Uh,
1: probably over 80.
2: Yeah. So, but how many national tour, pro tour and major wins do you have?
1: One, one national tour, no professional major wins, okay. one amateur major
2: Okay. So that I think that's gonna be the number in down the road that we're gonna compare. I, I think nothing against B tiers, but I think when you win a B tier it's not it doesn't hold it's it's not like winning a PGA tour in the fifties. Of course. Cool. Well you have somebody like
1: like Nate Doss who has you know, he might have half the number of wins that I do, but he has, you know, ten national tours and like five majors yeah. and his 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 tier of win is Significantly higher. It's probably, you know, top six best, best players ever to live, and he only has a few, a few uh, you know, forty to fifty wins
2: in his career. So, so break this down for me. Give me, uh, give me a solution. I, so, I think the the problem that I'm hearing you say is that uh, when you play a course, and uh, and I'll pick on Glow when you play a course like Toboggan, which is a, a beautiful course, I love those, those hills. The fans up there are fantastic. Paul McBeth shot the 18 down, which was a, a, a potentially a launching point for disc golf. It'll you know it'll probably take a year to three years for us to find out if that was truly a launching point. Um, so right. you've got you, you've got that course where you you can your drive can be errant, and you can still have Realistically, no worries. If if you're not in, in the ridiculous woods, uh, you have no worries about being able to go up and down for par um, sure. or birdie, whatever it is, uh, as opposed to a well-placed shorter drive. But uh, if you do the same thing at Eureka Lake or Maple Hill or USDGC, you're either OB or you've kicked into some thick woods and, and your life is very different. What, right. is, what is the fix between those two courses? Or just, yeah, what's the fix in general?
1: I think it's, you know, my my solution to this whole thing is a a long one. It's going to take some time, but I think, you know, for the upper tournaments, there needs to be some sort of committee that gets together with statisticians and the best course designers in the world, and um, they kind of get together and see what works and what doesn't because, you could imply, you know, new rules like stroke and distance and stuff like that, but there are definitely gonna be um tournament
3: directors that will abuse the rule who you know don't have um good course design knowledge or something like that, right? And so Oh were you think get an what, island. That was,
2: what's that? I said, uh, you, someone who says, "Oh, island holes are are good and difficult, so I'll just make eighteen of those."
3: Right, exactly.
1: If the whole course is stroke and distance, no matter the hole, no matter the shape, no matter the wind.
3: There would definitely uh, be people like that, I believe. So and so that's uh, why that's why I don't I don't like some of those rules
1: because I know they will be abused. But you know, if you get the right heads together. You can take a course that already has OB. You can imply these, you know, these, maybe the stroke and distance or, um, even moving the basket a couple feet here, a couple feet there. It just makes the hole just that
3: much harder. And it'll bring the field closer together. I think a lot of these courses and the, and, and course designs are, are bad, you know.
2: Be- better course design and thoughtful use of stroke and distance
3: is, thoughtful is the use sentence of all that, that I've just heard. Yeah, I think a, a better use of, you know, you can use, uh, I don't know, it, it's just, so a easy example would be. Even keypad placement.
1: I mean, you see this a lot, especially lately with these new courses, to where we're not playing the original course at all. And so we're having to use these temp keypads and things like that. And if we're going to be using the temp keypads, anyway, I say you should be able to use them even if there is a, a, a permanent pad. Because moving, you know, even a T-pad four feet to the left, four feet to the right can make a significant
3: impact on a hole um and it, and that's what i'm saying i'm saying like making the tee shot the most important shot is where you're going to probably um, make the course harder if that makes any sense
2: that that does make sense and, and i want to i want to just uh i want to expand on that and see if see if my take is correct um right now I'm gonna guess that you would say that uh putting is overweighted in disc golf. For is that sure. true?
3: It's definitely it's definitely the easiest part of the game probably. Especially
1: for the top And and,
2: and if players. you are if if you are able to hit uh sixty footers, um you have a significant advantage on probably a, a two to three stroke advantage on the average field over the course of the round. And then uh the other the other side of it is looking at an Idle Wild, looking at a Maple Hill, looking at a USDGC, a Eureka Lake. When a an errant drive is punished, then players need to be more thoughtful and they can't just bomb it uh with with disregard. To with no regard to the outcome, as opposed to a course like the toboggan, where there is, I think there's one hole with OB on the entire course. And so you can just bomb it and you just know, okay, I either need to go straight or left. Uh, I'm thinking about hole three. As long as I go straight or left as far as I possibly can, I will, I will be just fine and there's really no advantage to, to keeping the disc straight.
3: Okay, Yes. Yeah. So so
1: hypothetically we have a hold. 800 feet, okay?
2: Dead straight, Steve.
3: We have OB left, OB right, basket on a right-to-left slope, and we have a right-to-left flip. Player A
1: throws three, let's say four,
3: a four-on-his-hit
1: drive accurately right in the middle of the fairway, stops using the bounce. Player B throws it 500 feet and throws it out-of-bounds to the left. He advances up to his live. Player
3: A now has a 400-foot shot into a slope green with a right-to-left win. There's only one, really one, there's probably two, three, four
1: players in the world who will be able to make a shot like that. Land soft onto a green. Okay. Player B obviously, or Player A obviously, throws it in bounds. Now he has this shot. What that does is it brings bogey into play for that person because he's throwing a faster disc with a big rim. He's not going to be able to land that disc soft onto that green. It's just not possible. In order for him to hit birdie on that hole, he has to throw almost an impossible shot, Steve. And. He's bringing Bogey into play. You take here's my next point. You take the top 50 players in the world. You put them 250 feet away from the basket in any windy situation with basically any slope. They're going to figure out how to land their disc soft by the basket and probably get up and down. So now this guy, player B, who has thrown out of bounds 500 feet, he now has a shorter shot into the green. He's going to be able to land it soft, and he now has
2: the advantage. That,
1: to me, is a poor design.
2: So hold on a second, Paul. Hold on a second. Yeah. Wait, wait. This guy who threw it out of bounds is lying two. The guy who threw it 400 feet is, is lying one. Uh, the guy that threw it 400 feet clearly has the advantage because he didn't throw it out of bounds. He could throw a 200-foot upshot and then throw a 150-foot upshot and get his par all day. And he's uh, the worst-case scenario in that, in that
1: and that's my point. So now the field, that's the field talking, Steve. So now the field is playing really good golf, and
3: this other player is throwing an errant shot out of bounds and then taking the same score. This other person's playing the whole it perfectly, throwing a perfect shot every single time, doesn't gain a stroke and on the person who's throwing it out of
1: bounds.
2: That to me. And the other guy's throwing his shot as far as he can, five, five six hundred feet, and not caring cool. about, not not worried about OB because he knows worst case scenario he can just go up and down and save the par. But right. best case scenario, if he lands
3: it <laughs> he, he, in he's gaining a stroke on the field. Right. <laughs> so now, but what I'm saying is, but the first player, if he wants to gain a stroke, if he wants birdie he's going to have to risk bogey, right? Right. Because the, of the second guy is only right. risking par. Basically. You know, obviously there's scenarios where that guy's going to miss a 20-footer or something like that, but his
1: upshot is significantly sure. – like, where he's going to get up and down seven out of ten times.
2: Yeah. And the other guy's not going to get the not going to get the birdie very often. He, corner he, might, yeah, he, might, he might get
1: birdie right. He might get birdie two out of ten.
3: So yeah. his only option is to lay up, take par, lose a stroke to the other guy, and the long run of the tournament if he plays that hole four times. And if that was stroke and
2: distance. Uh, then p- player B in your scenario would be sitting three on the tee. They're p- they're playing to the, almost the same spot I bet. Uh, exactly where I was headed. Yeah, they're going to say, wait a minute, that in fact is not worth it, and the risk right. reward becomes too. The risk becomes too big. The juice And now they have weak. to
1: out. And now they have to outplay each other.
3: Yeah. Or, and so, of
1: course, the guy with the advantage of the distance has 100% the option to go for the easy birdie. But he's probably not going to because now he has to play golf. He has to think, okay, the field is probably going to lay up on this hole. I have an opportunity
3: to gain a stroke on the field for sure, but is it worth it?
2: Right. And you, I think you, maybe uh, on purpose, but it seems like inadvertently just said the whole your whole point in one sentence when you said, now he's forced to play golf.
3: Yep. He's not just playing, he's not just
2: playing Huck Huck and go get it. He's he's not playing
3: a game.
1: He's playing golf.
2: He's playing golf. And in that scenario, going ahead and just finishing it out, uh, better course design might, might put a little bump in the fairway at, 500 feet to encourage players to go ahead and take that risk, and right. uh, and they're you know look it's not uh, just if you want to land it at 400 because it's a controlled drive and you can do that all day that's fine if you want to go for the birdie here's a little bit bigger area on the uh, on the fairway You'll make a little bump out and you can try to land it in there it's a little bigger spot and uh, and if you do that you get your birdie and if you don't do that then you're you're lying three on the tee. And, uh, and just to, just to make the, the reward side, you know, a little bit bigger. It's a, it's a very difficult, um, w- um balancing act, risk versus reward. And if you have, sure. if designers have the option of, uh, of incorporating stroke and distance on just a, a hole or two, there, there is an opportunity to, to improve the golf that people are playing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like a really great example for me in this whole situation is hole 12 at the USGPC used to be a par five. Now it's a par four. If you you throw it in bounds and then you miss your shot into the green, okay, the basket is on a flat surface, but just behind the basket, there's a slope that kind of slopes down. Left is OB and short is OB. You'll have to carry out of bounds the whole entire way on your second shot, right? There I have if you miss the shot, if you go out of bounds at all, you go to a drop zone which is almost exactly where your drive would land in the first place, okay? Um over the last okay. however many years I've always laid up on this hole and there's always been somebody on my card who has taken seven or worse. Because you're throwing a fast disc into a green where you have very little control over. And then it rolls or it
3: skips or a little bit of an error at that distance. And you don't have control over what the disc does, right? I think that's the way Nate plays it as well. I think he lays up unless he throws his roller far enough. So, you know, that's a great example of what I'm saying. Well, I'm going to say, uh,
2: Paul, thank you very much for being uh, very thoughtful, uh, and I look forward to seeing you on the podium again and hopefully with the winner's jacket, uh, whether the courses are changed or not. Um, and you are right, Maple Hill has, uh, has in its 15 years, I think, has just two people that have won it twice, Kale and Ricky. And uh it, it does, you, you have to be on your game and, uh, and hitting every line to, to succeed up here. So uh, thank you very much for putting a really interesting thought in our head. Um, course design needs to bear in mind that we are playing golf and, uh, and stroke and distance is a rule. Is stroke and distance, like, why isn't stroke and distance used right now?
1: You know that's a good question. I think I think the reason is people started abusing the rule after the USGC implemented it into their course, and I think people wanted to make that style of course on, you know, on their on their local course or their local tournament or whatever. And I think it got to the point where, you know, people were taking gigantic numbers, and it might have been messing up the ratings or you know, something like that, or or maybe taking too long to complete rounds. People were, you know, having to go grab their whole bag after not being able to make it on an island or something like that, but they just got rid of the rule completely.
2: So right now, stroke and distance is not an allowed thing in the PDGA?
3: No. In fact, the USDGC has stroke and distance still, and you are not allowed, or not allowed, they don't give a rating for the tournament. Because of because that rule is broken. Because they get it's a like waiver for stroke reasons. and distance. hmm
1: Which is okay. crazy to me that the biggest tournament we have every single year,
3: we don't even get a rating for. Uh, m- maybe at the top level... Ratings are not important. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs>
2: um, thank you, Paul. I uh, I look forward to seeing where this conversation goes, and uh, encourage everybody to uh, to start talking about it and you know, seeing what what we can do to continue to design courses well.
3: Yes, I agree. All right, thank you, Steve.
0: Have, have a great night, Paul. We'll talk to you later.
3: Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye.
0: Well, thank you very much to Paul Yulabari for taking some time and uh, telling us another great story. Congratulations, Nico, on having Paul's number for a year plus. And thank you to Paul for saying, uh, while Paul and Ricky are in fact great and are possibly the greatest players that we have seen for the last five plus years, Maybe the reason that they've had such great success is because they have the ability to drive very far and are fantastic putters. And according to what I think we just heard, maybe those two things, those two skill sets are magnified a little bit more than they should be. It's a really interesting point to discuss. Uh, Maple Hill has a lot of trees, USDGC has a lot of ropes. When you get punished for going offline on your drive, it is much harder to stay on top. But when you are playing, for example, toboggan, and all you need to do is throw it far and get inside circle two on your second shot, uh, that is a much easier task. There's no OB to punish you, and especially no stroke and distance to punish you. So, All right, on to the Tour Championship. The MVP Open, as we stated earlier, is the final event of the regular season. If you wanna make your move, you have one chance left. So we're gonna talk about this in four segments. The first segment is the top four women. They will get a buy into the semifinals. Then we will talk about the top 12 women and uh, who needs to make a move to try to get into the top 12. Then we'll go to the men's side and do the same. We'll talk about the top eight men and we will talk about what it'll take to be in the top 32. And this is going to be very interesting. There are a lot of storylines to follow coming into the MVP Open. Here we go. Looking at the top four women, we've got Paige Pierce, Sarah Hokum, Jessica Weiss, and Katrina Allen. In fifth place is Lisa Fakes. Lisa Fakes is about 40 or 50 points behind Katrina and Jessica, and both of them have a, an event that has been dropped, which is more than 50 points. So those four players literally cannot be caught, just a matter of what the order exactly is going to be. Right now it sits with Paige, Sarah, Jessica, and Katrina. Looking at the race for Tour Points Champion, which in the first year was won by Sarah and the second year was won by Paige, Sarah is 20 points behind Paige, which means Sarah would need to win and Paige would need to do third or worse. If Sarah gets second place, earning herself 85 points, Paige would need to get seventh or worse. So realistically, Sarah needs to walk away with the win and hope Paige gets third or worse and then Sarah will earn her second tour points championship. Moving on to the top 12 and what it'll take to get qualified on the women's side. Tina Stenitis currently sits in 12th uh, with 192 points. Nicole Pickle Dionisio sits at 170 points. So she needs to gain 22 points, which if she can get a top 10 finish is possible, but she's got a. I would. I think Pickle's got to look at eighth or better, and Holly Finley, who's eight points behind Pickle, needs to finish probably in the top five, uh, which is possible. She uh, she got fourth place at Idlewild, and this is a very similar course. So the battle for twelfth is between Tina, Pickle, and Holly, and it'll be interesting to see which one of them secures that spot. Let's move on to the men's side. So let's start it off with the Tour Points champion. And I will tell you a big congratulations to Paul Macbeth for winning the 2018 Pro Tour Points Championship. He has a 60-point lead on Ricky Wysocki. The worst he has finished is 13th. So even if he finishes worse than that, he will get the, the 41 points from that drop that is his current worst, and he would be over 100 points ahead of Ricky. So, Ricky cannot catch Paul. It's still worth trying to win the MVP Open, but it's not going to garner him the Tour Points Championship. Congratulations to Paul on that score. Also, in the top eight, right now we've got, in this order, Paul Macbeth, Ricky Wysocki, James Conrad, Nate Sexton, Garrett Gerthy, Eagle McMahon, Kevin Jones, and Drew Gibson. By my calculations, it would be very difficult for any of them to be knocked out of the top eight. They have uh, they have buys, no, they have dropped events that are so high that it is all but impossible for the likes of Johnny McRae, Grady Shue, Eric Oakley, Jeremy Coling, and Nate Perkins to catch them. So it's just a matter of what the order is gonna be. And uh, the closest people in points are Nate Sexton, Garrett Gurthy, Eagle McMahon, Kevin Jones, and Drew Gibson. Those, the bottom four, five are all within 35, 40 points of each other. Nate Sexton and Garrett Gurthy are within one point of each other. So uh, the, those are the battles to watch to see who, will, who they will be competing against in the semifinals at the Tour Championship. But I don't expect any significant movement out of the top eight, which means let's go look at 32nd place and what it's going to take to be in the Tour Championship. So now when we look at the top 32, the real question is the three people that are not attending the MVP Open or are not currently registered, Seppo Paiu, Dave Feldberg, and James Proctor, Uh, They have 162, 161, and 150 points, respectively. And there are a plethora of players that could potentially catch them and knock them out. So those players include uh, Bradley Williams, who is 136 points, currently sitting just 30 points behind Seppo, actually 25 And to get 25 points, you need to get 23rd or 24th. So if Bradley Williams gets 23rd or 24th, he is in. Uh, Philo Brathwaite, uh, he is just three points behind Bradley. It's going to be very similar. It's probably going to be 22nd or 23rd place, and he is in. Tim Barham, same. Oh, he's actually 10 more behind. He needs to get 15th. And then Reed Frescura, who might be signing up for the MVP Open, uh, he's got a seventh and a fourth on tour this year. If he does that again, he will be in. And those three people would be knocked out of the bubble. So those are the storylines to watch. Uh, Zach Johnson, Anthony Barella, Kale Leviska, Alex Russell are all a little farther down and looking to make that move. And uh, it'll be very fun to watch and see if they can. Those are just some of the extra storylines going on at the MVP Open. This week's podcast of the week, that brings us to the podcast of the week that we will close it out with. So when you're done listening to this, I strongly recommend you go over and check out the folks at Radio Lab. Sometimes they even do live shows. Uh, one of my favorite dates with Jenny was to a Radio Lab live, live show. I seem to remember some very large inflatable dinosaur on the stage. These guys talk about some of the most interesting things in the world and uh, have helped inform me and make my opinions on topics, uh, either modify my opinions or, uh, or give me a reason to actually believe my opinions. Uh, it is an impressive show and I strongly recommend you give it a listen take about five minutes if you don't get interested then uh well don't let me know anyway so that's the end of pro tour talk this week I hope you guys enjoy watching the MVP open it starts live on Friday Saturday and Sunday this is the final event of the pro tour season here we go I hope you all have a fantastic evening This has been Pro Tour Talk. I'm Steve Dodge. Good night.